So when you hear the word authority, what comes to mind? How do you respond? Are you suspicious? Are you concerned? Are you skeptical? Wait a second. I got to be free to be me, man. No one tells me what to do except if they sign my paycheck, maybe. So within our society, we've been conditioned to think this way. And even as professing Christians, it's an element of the air in which we we are all saturated. So we have a hard time, certainly our society does, and maybe it spills over onto us, we have a hard time differentiating authority from authoritarianism. We have a hard time differentiating authority from its abuse. The irony, of course, is that those who condition us to reject authority simply wish to substitute their own authority for that which they call us to reject, whether it's uh, pers- you know, whether that could be family authority or, or, or church authority or whatever authority, they, or even God himself. They want to substitute their own authority for the authority they're calling us to reject. They tell us to be free, but then they find freedom as what they believe, how they wish society to be, what they think gives life meaning that makes it worth living. So we will live, unmistakably, we will live under authority. We'll be subject to forces and ideas that do not originate with us. The question is who or what that authority will be. So to consider that question, we now turn to our gospel reading from this morning. And I'd like to just sort of step back and look at Matthew's gospel on the whole, which leads us up to our reading. So right from the beginning, Matthew announces that Jesus is the king who's come into the world on a rescue mission to redeem his people from their sins. This announcement is made in in the very first chapter of Matthew's gospel. And to to be king is to have authority. It is basically at the essence of kingship is you are the one with authority. So as Jesus comes as one with authority, authority to speak and authority to act. So after presenting Jesus as the king with authority, then Matthew unfolds in his gospel, Jesus' teaching with authority, and and especially in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, in what is known to us as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is how the Sermon on the Mount concludes. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So was it the manner of Jesus' speech at which the crowds marveled, you know, that he spoke with a booming voice, that he was large and in charge? No, no, it was the content. Because ordinarily a teacher or even a prophet, did not speak on his own authority. He simply passed on what he had received, whether it was from another teacher or even from God himself. They say, this is what, this is what so-and-so says, or this is what God says. Or put another way, whatever authority he had came from somebody else. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says repeatedly, what does he say repeatedly? You have heard it said But I say to you, I say to you, hey, hey buddy, who are you? That's how they talked back then. Um, (laughs) I'm the one with authority. What I say is what is. I define reality. There is no one above me or behind me validating my words. They stand simply by virtue of my saying them because I'm the one with authority. So following the Sermon on the Mount, 
then we see Jesus then acting with authority. We see him exercising authority over illness and disease. He heals a number of people. And then in our reading, we continue to see Jesus exercise authority. So we see Jesus exercising authority in one setting after another over different aspects of reality. We see him exercising authority over one, over nature itself, two, over the spiritual realm, and number three, over people regarding their ultimate destiny. We are presented with different settings where we see Jesus speaking and acting with authority. And in each of them, Jesus' authority is disturbing or unsettling in some way. It's disruptive of what people expect or what they want. And the question for them, and by extension, the question for us this morning is this. Are we willing to accept the disturbance Jesus brings with him and his authority Or would we rather keep our lives settled the way they are without him? Are we willing to accept the disturbance that Jesus brings with him and his authority? Or would we rather keep our lives settled and ordered the way they are without him? So let's enter in. First setting. Chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. The disciples are following Jesus. They're in the boat with Jesus when a huge storm comes up on the sea causing them to fear for their lives. Now, unfortunately, and strangely, certainly to them, Jesus is asleep. He's not doing anything. And the disciples are disturbed by this. They say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And the same account in Mark's gospel, chapter 4, they say to him, do you not care that we are perishing? Lord, we're in trouble. Don't you care? Is this not a feeling that you might be familiar with? Maybe it's something ongoing in your life today, right now. We have a situation where we believe the Lord is with us, yet we are in trouble, and he is seeming, and he is asleep. It seems as if he's not paying attention. He's not doing anything to save us from the storm. Lord, I need you. Lord, do something, anything. Please make it go away, and it doesn't go away. Lord, don't you care Lord, Lord, are you, are you even there? Is any of this real? Here's what Jesus says to you. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He takes the opportunity of the storm not to soothe them, they are there, but to awaken them. You still don't know me. You still don't understand. You still don't trust me as you ought. You see the storm and its power, which is real. The Lord never calls us or asks of us to deny reality. He does not deny the presence of the storm and its gravity and its weight and its even peril. So you see the storm and its power, but you don't see me and my goodness and my power and my care in the midst of it. Brothers and sisters, when you don't see Jesus as he really is, not as you imagine him to be or you expect him to be, but as he is, all you see is the storm and you are afraid. Afraid of abandonment, afraid of what's next, afraid there's no way out, afraid of death. And maybe you're not afraid anymore because you've given up and your fear has now become despair. I'll just wait for the waves to consume me. Before Jesus does anything, before he intervenes, 
to address your fears and your despair, Jesus calls your attention to himself. He says to you, look at me. The storm does not define reality. I define reality. Who I am is not subject to the storm. The storm is subject to who I am. You must know this. Before he acts, and then Jesus acts. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Question, when Jesus acts, are they more or less disturbed? In some respect, they are even more troubled. They've gone from saying, Hey, buddy, who are you? But who are you? Who are you? This is someone with authority over creation. As we already read in our Old Testament reading this morning from Psalm 89. I'll read it again, verses 8 to 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107, verses 28 to 29. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Who is this that the storm and the waves do what he tells them? The authority that belongs to God is the authority that belongs to Jesus. The power that belongs to God is the power that belongs to Jesus. This is God with us. This is God with you. He is Lord with you in the storm, exercising authority over it at all times. He is Lord with you in the storm, exercising authority over the storm at all times, both when it rages and when it stops. The presence of the storm isn't indicative of the absence of the Lord. But someone who can control the wind and the rain isn't someone whose power you can harness or that you can manage. You cannot control the authority of Jesus. You can only resist it and oppose it or you can trust and rest in it. When you follow Jesus, he brings storms into your life where it seems he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing insofar as we are concerned in order for you to trust him more and know him better, more deeply, more truly, more powerfully, more awesomely. And he is with you all the way through. May your fear move you to trust him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For one reason, one reason only, you are with me. Next, we see Jesus exercising authority over the spiritual realm, verses 28 to 34 of chapter 8. He encounters two demon-possessed men. Now, a lot of people in our society might say, what's up with the demons, man? But you might say, no, I know all about the demons. The fact there are demons simply means that evil is personal. There are spiritual beings who oppose God and want to hurt people who are made in God's image. That's what demons do. That's their purpose. And there's an ultimate demonic power we call the devil. And it says in 1 John 3 that Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Now, many people, again, sort of the, 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 era, the, the, the age in which we live... The ideas around us think of good and evil, light and dark, the demonic and the godly, as two equal and opposing forces. You know, they're fighting out for supremacy and who will win. 
But that's not what we see here at all. These are not two equal and opposing forces. The demons are subject to Jesus' authority. First, they recognize him and his power. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Secondly, they do what he says. They do what he says. For they must do what he says. He says, go, and they go. The demons are looking to wreak as much havoc as they can before they face their destruction, which they know is coming. But they are subject to the Lord's authority. So Jesus some drives out the demons. Now, something we find not only here in our passage, but really throughout the Gospels, is that the demons recognize who Jesus is and the threat he is to them before anyone else. Like, we know who you are. We know what you're up to. Everyone else is like, I don't know. What is, who is he? What's going on? We don't understand. And the demons are just like, they, they kind of, on some level, they get it. And so there's a frenzy of demonic activity around him. I submit to you, maybe that's an, in part an explanation for the, friends we, for the frenzy we find in our world today. We live in a time of great chaos and upheaval. There's a frenzy of spiritual activity that is actively harming and destroying people. And at the same time, what I offer to you is this. Is that frenzy is an indicator of and a response to the advancement of God's kingdom and the work of the Holy Spirit. Do not be put off by the frenzy. I'm not talking about being casual or indifferent, not in any way, shape, or form, but do not be put off by it, but also don't be ignorant of it, but be encouraged, encouraged to seek the Lord. To which kingdom will you belong Friends, the way to be free of the demons is to come under the authority of the master. It's to come under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. His word is what drives them out. Now, when Jesus drives out the demons, what happens? Does the town rejoice? No. The people are what? They are terribly disturbed. All the city, what do they do? They plead with Jesus to leave their region. Jesus casts out the demons, and they respond by casting Jesus out. Why do they cast Jesus out? Because Jesus drives out the demons into a large herd of pigs. Why are they so upset? Because this is sort of some sort of first century animal rights movement? You know, PETA before PETA? No, that's not what's going on. What are the pigs? The pigs are their wealth. The pigs are their livelihood. The pigs are the local economy. So here we have Jesus, the king with authority, Right? Setting two captives free from great oppression and darkness. Right? The kingdom of God is on the move, but it's too costly. It's too disruptive to the lives of those in the community. This is the local economy that we're talking about. This is not a small thing. But they're so captive to what they have and their way of life the way it is that they can't see what's right in front of their eyes. They literally can't see it. They can't see Jesus. They can't see what he's doing. They only see what they are losing. They they see that very clearly, what is being taken from them, but they don't see what they are gaining instead. You're messing up everything, man. Get out of here. So they prefer to keep their lives the way they are, 
even with the demons, to having their lives disrupted and disturbed by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, can you relate to this temptation? Can you relate to the desire to keep a safe, ordered, comfortable life? Friends, brothers and sisters, this is the local economy. This is the stuff you get up and go to work for, and that you pay your mortgage with. This is not a small thing. But this challenges us to the core of what, where our treasure is, what we live for, what we are investing in. Maybe you're happy to keep Jesus around to keep your life in order. But what if his presence, his freedom, his sovereignty, his authority disrupts your life? How will you respond? Now, some of you might be thinking, maybe a few of you, I don't know. You know, you know, man, I've got nothing to hold on to. I have no pigs left to lose. Okay, I hear you. But you know what? Often it's the things that make us miserable or that, that, that keep us from Jesus, that we hold on to instead. Right? Friends, don't sell your soul for anything, for any price. He's the treasure. He's the valuable one, not the pigs. Maybe if we called them pigs, we might relativize them and put them in their proper place. The things that we so value, instead of him, maybe we should name them pigs. We'd see them for what they are. Who will you cast out when faced with this kind of situation? What we must say is this, Lord Jesus, we beg you to stay and do whatever you need to do. Please don't go. And if that means some really weird stuff is going to happen and I'm going to lose a bunch of pigs, then so be it. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Hallowed be your name among us. So let's continue to follow him as he brings another disturbance. Now we're into chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. So this time we see him exercising authority over people regarding their ultimate destiny. A group of really good friends... These are good friends. Bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus so he can heal him. And, and what did Jesus say? Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, now they are disturbed. It's their turn to be disturbed. They're offended because why? Well, it's kind of clear, right? Because Jesus has the, the audacity to declare this man's sins forgiven. Hey, who do you think you are? Where do you get, again, this authority? It's a question of authority. He's blaspheming. Why? Because no one but God can forgive all of someone's sins. No one has that authority to do so. In other words, you are claiming for yourself what only God has the right to claim. So how does Jesus respond? He says to them, you know what? You think these are just words coming out of my mouth? You're kind of, okay, you're kind of true. Anyone can mouth the words, your sins are forgiven. But can anyone other than God himself Take a paralyzed person and with a word enable him to walk. Who has the authority to take what is dead and bring it to life? So Jesus says to the paralyzed man, rise, and he does. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So I'm going to just take this opportunity to remind you, maybe for most of you, what you already know. It's what we do here on Sunday mornings quite often. Sin is the fundamental human problem. Sin is the biggest problem that you have in your life at this very moment. It is your sin against God. That is everyone's ultimate real problem that must be addressed, that you cannot address yourself. 
And that's an insight that we only get from the scriptures. It is not something that any of us instinctively know. None of us know that by nature. By nature, we think every problem we have is outside of us. From the people, the circumstances, the situation, the upbringing, whatever. But the scriptures point us in here to the problem we have inside of our hearts. that We are sinners, and Jesus saves from sins. He grants forgiveness of sins to any and all who come to him. Do you believe the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive your sin? Do you believe that this morning? You know the answer by whether or not you get up off your mat when he calls you or if you just lay there paralyzed by your sin. So I had a cousin named uh, John Hanna, and we were close in age um, and very close in relationship, so it was very confusing to everyone else. Um, so John, in his late teens, began using drugs and was, fell into heroin addiction for over 10 years. He spent time on the street. He spent time in jail where I visited him. And he tried everything to get clean. But the thing was, John didn't, John didn't only want to get clean. He wouldn't settle for that. That goal by itself, that goal of getting clean, getting sober, which isn't a bad goal at all. It's a good goal. But that by itself didn't have the power, the glory, the authority to heal him or change him. He wanted life. He wanted the truth. And even as he was running away from God with every fiber of his being at the same time, he was desperate for, for what only God could give to him. And one day, the Lord captured him. And John came and said to me, Jesus is real, and I believe in him. And it was one of the most remarkable things that I've ever observed in my life because it was like watching a miracle before those who were close to him. It was like watching a miracle before our eyes. It was, it was mesmerizing to watch a man come under the power and authority of the Lord in such a way. And the change affected us all. He, he, was, he was the agent of the Holy Spirit for change within our family. We began Bible studies. We began like evangelizing just because of one man coming under the authority of the Lord. And, and so John went back to those who he used to hang out with. He went back to the homeless, went back to the streets, went back to the addicted, went back to the poor. And then after five years, he died from injuries sustained in a car accident. For the last six months of his life, he serves as an assistant pastor at a local church in New Jersey. And the pastor he worked with loved to tell this story. So he and John go to see this man who's strung out on drugs. He's laid out in his bed. And he says, I can't get up. I don't want to get up. I have no reason to get up. So John gets right into the bed and lays next to him and says, I'm not getting up out of this bed until we get up together. Why did John do that? Because that's what Jesus did for him. That's what he does for us. Right? He comes down and lays right next to you in, in the bed that you have made from which, from which you can't get up and maybe you don't even want to get up and he raises you with him. He comes right down into the storm of sin that is killing us and plunges down into sin and plunges down into death and, ra- and rises and raises you up with him when you come to him as your authority. 
Will you come? How can you not come? How can we not do what we see Matthew doing in our gospel? Jesus calls to him. He's like, me? I can come, really? Just now? Like, I can be with you? I can follow you wherever you go? And you're going to be with me always? And I get to listen to you and I get to obey you? I get to do what pleases you and you get to work your character? In? Really? I can do that? Yeah, I'll come. And then what does Matthew do? He throws a great big party and invites all of his friends. He's like, yeah, you can come too. He'll take anybody. Just come now. Just come the way you are. Whatever your deal is, whatever your story is, whatever the the wretched life you have lived up until now is, or whatever good quote-unquote life you have lived up until now, not only can you come, but you must come. You must come. Because there's only one with authority. This is from uh, John Piper. uh, His book, What Jesus Demands from the World. When the most glorious person in the universe pays all my debts and then demands that I come to live with him and enter into his joy, there can be no more desirable demand imaginable. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How does Matthew's gospel conclude? What are Jesus' last words? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the one who has all authority. Friends, that is, that is both maximally sobering, but oh, maximally encouraging, maximally hopeful, because Jesus triumphs, and in him you triumph. Will you, come to, will, will you accept, will you make the trade? Will you accept the disturbance? Brothers and sisters, accept the disturbance. Maybe for the first time this morning, or for many of you, just be renewed in that hope, that call of Christ, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, to be your authority today and your authority forever, for there is no better news. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for sending your Son into the world to be such a one as we have looked at through your word this morning. Lord Jesus, we again anew, maybe afresh, marvel at you. Marvel at your lordship, your sovereignty, your mercy, your, your wisdom, your love, your faithfulness. Oh Lord, for those facing difficulties now that are overwhelming them, May they see you in the midst of the storm, find you faithful, even now, in the midst of it. May you set us free from captivity to forces of oppression and demonic darkness to come to you. Lord, set the captives free, Lord, and may we receive the forgiveness of sins that only comes in your name and by your blood and righteousness. Oh, Lord, all you take care of every aspect of, of, of trouble that we may face and give us a maximal hope. For one day, everyone will stand before you. And I pray that we all here will stand in faith and hope and a love that endures forever in your name. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray to you, our Father. Amen. Amen.